นโมทัสสะโกวาตัวอรหัตตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะโกวาตัวอรหัตตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะโกวาตัวอรหัตตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะพุทธังดมังสังขังนมัสสะอยู่ days ago I received a uh, an email from uh, a supporter and friend of our monastery who had been involved in organizing and running a meditation retreat and I uh, I had contacted him saying that I hope everything went well and he got back to me mentioning how it was. Uh, He talked about it was good practice dealing with the various challenges involved, and there's a, a large gathering of people on retreat. A very well-known, respected, a famous teacher, and he didn't go into the issues, but I, I can imagine some of the pressure that this fellow must have been under. But I was really pleased to uh, see that he wasn't at all complaining about. The predicament. In fact, he said it was uh, a good practice maintaining mindfulness at the same time as facing all these challenges. And now, sometimes in our practice, uh, you hear people talking about their difficulties as, "Well, that's good practice." And sometimes we we talk about it in a perhaps a slightly casual way, perhaps even a little bit flippant, uh, but. I think it's it's really significant and and really fortunate, and I'd like to consider a little bit this evening about how fortunate we are that we have this as part of our attitude towards practice. I, I returned this guy's email and I wrote back to him and said, "Yes, not getting your own way is a really good practice. Uh, having." Convenient, conducive conditions that lead to contentment and calm—that's yes, of course, good in the beginning. Right? That helps. Yeah. Uh, we all like uh, contentment and calm, and but if we get hung up on that, if that's our goal in practice, is just to have conditions that conduce with calm and contentment. Our practice is not going to take us where we need to go. So this attitude we have of uh, hopefully an increasing willingness to meet those conditions that don't conduce with calm and uh, contentment, and to meet them in a, in a non-judgmental way. Reminded of when Ajahn Chah once talked about how you assess the uh, caliber of a monk. Uh, you don't assess the caliber of a monk by seeing how he sits on his cushion, uh, but you look at how he behaves at a festival, like when there's a Katina festival. Like next Sunday, we've got the Katina festival, and the, 
loads of guests coming and mountains of seriously attractive food and the potential for getting distracted is considerable. And can we still stay present? Do we have mindfulness in the midst of all the tendencies for distraction, not just when conditions are conducive and convenient? So the disposition of somebody uh, who he considers as a truth seeker, what is the disposition of a truth seeker? Uh, It's this. It's somebody who has established himself in a commitment to consistently cultivate mindfulness, restraint, and reflection. Those three qualities. If there's no mindfulness, well, of course, we're perpetually distracted, we're all over the place, we end up saying and doing things that we regret. If there's no mindfulness, there's no energy, there's no alertness, there's no watchfulness. One of the images that the Buddha gave in talking about mindfulness was that of a gatekeeper, somebody standing at the entranceway of a, of a city, minding the gate, and watching who comes in and who goes out. He's watching just this watchfulness, checking to see. Sometimes people think mindfulness is is uh, about concentration yeah. or tranquility. Yeah. Well, Ajahn Chah took it, mindfulness is 24-7, even when we're sleeping. Now, probably none of us can do that, but that's actually what we're aiming for. It's all around uh, watchfulness, alertness, attentiveness, carefulness, yeah. and restraint. And mindfulness, restraint. Without restraint... Then again, I'm sure we all have the experience of what it's like when there's lots of sight, sound, smells, taste, touches and mental impressions that are pulling our attention out. We tend to get lost. Somebody was asking me recently, I think we'd been into Newcastle and the subject came up about how was it for you when you were a young monk and you used to go into town and and uh, I can remember uh, the early days living at Wat Nana Chart in Thailand. And, and uh, yeah, things were really, really frugal, really <laughs> very modest in those days. And a uh, grass roof hut and uh, really simple conditions. And you'd stay there uh, many months on end without going anywhere else except for walking into the village, which was, again, exceedingly poor and, and uh, not very interesting. And then one day, for whatever reason, you might have to go into town and all the sights, the sounds, the smells, the beautiful, attractive fragrances, the ugly smell. I can remember the the sewer going down the street. uh, I would get a headache. I'd get a terrible headache uh, because the habit of the height energy being pulled out and caught up in sense objects. The spiritual... Facility, the Buddha talked about a sangmara indriya, restraint, is a powerfully significant quality that all of us, if we're interested in seeking truth, need to be working on. So restraint. We do use will in the beginning. Yeah, we use will to exercise us holding back, holding back. You know, like with the meditation where, you know, something comes up, oh, I'd love to think about that. I say, no, no, right now I'm exercising this, staying focused, present at the moment. And I say, what about that? And you know that, that impulse to get pulled. And, say, 
Yeah. Refining down that ability to hold the mind back. And you know, maybe we, we yank it back and, and we <laughs> treat it rather brutally. That doesn't work. Just like if you know, you're trying to tame a horse. You know, you've got to really treat this animal with respect. Otherwise, it's not going to be tamed. You, know, you might, if you beat it, you might manage to break it in, but you won't have a beautiful, rewarding relationship with it. Yeah. So likewise, with the heart passions, the heart energy, learning to do the right kind of restraint, learning to exercise the right kind of restraint, that means it doesn't compromise mindfulness. So there's mindfulness and the right kind of restraint, and then the other element, wise reflection, these, these elements working together to untangle the knots of delusion mm-hmm. to help take us towards the goal, uh, the point of our practice. So. so the characteristic, the disposition of somebody seeking the truth is that, you know, whatever the conditions, not just when they're conducive and agreeable, but when they're quite the opposite. If we uh, have a clear uh, appreciation, what matters, what matters is this: mindfulness, restraint, reflection, being able to being able to ask ourselves deep questions at just the right time and just the right way. Not asking somebody else's question. There isn't anybody else like us. We've got our own unique, complex conundrum of confusion. And how do we untangle this? Yeah. Like untangling a knot. You know, if you're into crochet and your wool gets all tangled, or uh, if maybe some years ago you used to be <laughs> into fishing and your fishing line gets tangled, or well, you all know it's like you get a tangled bit of rope or string and you pull it this way and it gets tighter, and that doesn't work. You pull that way, and that one doesn't work. And then you, ah, that one does work. That works in untangling the confusion of my heart at this time and this place. And so the consistent effort into cultivation of these qualities, mindfulness, restraint, and reflection, it's the consistency of our effort that really makes a difference. You know, we can you know, burn bright for a while and maybe go on a retreat and have a great experience uh, because we're in great company and maybe you've got an inspiring teacher and things just fall into place and you know, that can be helpful indeed. But let's not assume that we need those conditions for the cultivation of mindfulness, restraint, and reflection. Yeah. If we're making the goal of our practice the cultivation of mindfulness, restraint, and reflection, not making the goal of our practice just getting around with a smile on our dial. Now, sometimes uh, spiritual teachings, if we're not uh, reflective enough, if we haven't had the right kind of education, we might think that you know, progress means we're supposed to be happy all the time. But uh, that's an initial impression and an understandable one. Uh, But we need to move on from that. That kind of happiness, the kind of happiness that we get when we get our own way, 
when everything on the retreat goes smoothly and the organizer is happy, that kind of happiness is not reliable. The happiness of that comes with getting my own way. That's like, like with children. As children, we, of course, we, we, we were happy when we got our own way the whole time. But as we grow up, hopefully, we sooner or later start to learn the lesson that, hmm, I'm not going to get my own way the whole time. And then the reflective mind kicks in. And what is this happiness? What is the reality of the happiness that arises from getting my own way? There's nothing wrong with it. There's absolutely nothing wrong with the happiness that arises from getting my own way. But if that's the only happiness that we're familiar with, if, that, if that's what we're committed to pursuing, we're going to really get frustrated regularly. And what are we going to do when we're having a bad time, when we don't get our own way? Well, we can, of course, we can stamp our feet and blame somebody and get angry and upset, but, well, a little investigation, we come to recognise that's not... We don't want to contribute that to this world. There's enough people doing that already. Is there another possibility? And this, of course, is what our spiritual teachers held up, the possibility of realising the state of contentment that comes even when we're not getting our own way, that recognising the momentum, the movement of the mind that is wanting or not wanting, liking or disliking, can be seen. That movement is that, is an activity that can be known. Now that's a goal worth working towards. Cultivating the knowing that the Buddha pointed out as a safe refuge, cultivating the quality of awareness that can accommodate getting my own way and not getting my own way, getting what I like, getting what I dislike, getting happiness and getting unhappiness. So being clear about the goal, if we're not clear about the goal, if we don't have a clear concept of the goal, as I was saying earlier, we might end up thinking that just Conventional happiness, that's the goal. The happiness that comes from gratification. Yeah. Or that the goal is, is something that depends upon somebody else. Yeah. We could also be conditioned to think that we are ultimately inherently inadequate and we need something more from outside of ourselves. That's... Uh, that's not a suitable goal, according to the Buddha and the great disciples. Yeah. That keeps us feeling weak. That keeps us feeling dependent on conditions outside of ourselves. Rather, the goal that the Buddha held up is something that is potentially within the hearts of all human beings. Potentially. And so if we hold that concept of the goal as within... Yes, we can use the skillful means, we can bow to Buddha images and be uplifted and inspired. We can chant verses of gratitude and respect towards the teacher and the teachings. And in so doing, we can be energized in our practice without, hopefully, getting caught up and dependent. The Buddha uses the word skillful means or upaya. We all need skillful means, like the tools that we use. You want to, you want to craft something. You want to build a table. You have some raw planks of wood, and 
Well, it really helps to have a saw. Yeah. Breaking the wood over your knee is not, that's not the most elegant way to do it. Yeah. Or a pocket knife. Mm. Cutting through oak with a pocket knife. Yeah. Or teak. Can you imagine cutting through teak? I mean, teak is such beautiful wood, but it's so awful when you get those slithers in your finger. And really painful. So having a nice sharp saw is good. Having chisels is good. Having planes is really good. Having sandpaper is really good. Yeah. Knowing how to use these tools is really But the tools, having a great toolkit, that's not the table. The great toolkit has got a function. So the skillful means that the Buddha and the tradition that's been born out of his teachings have equipped us with is a great blessing. But we use these tools, these tools and being skillful, skilled at using these tools, this is not the goal either. What is the goal? How do we conceive of the goal? There is a, a functional way of thinking about the goal in practice. These days in my own thinking I've been contemplating inherent adequacy. What is inherent adequacy? What is the state? Is it possible to abide in a state of inherent adequacy? Mm. So often we feel inadequate. Mm. So long as we're identified with the conditions that are limited by birth and death, the body-mind, and all the sight, sound, smells, taste, touches, and mental impressions, so long as we're clinging and finding identity in our clinging with these conditions... Of course, we feel inadequate. We feel limited. We are inadequate. The deluded personality is inherently inadequate, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's like saying, why can't you cling to a rainbow? I mean, it's so beautiful. Rainbows rainbows can be just just so beautiful. They just happen to be in the right light with a nice grey sky behind them, positioned over some beautiful hills and green countryside and that rainbow is so beautiful, why can't I just cling to it? It's not in the nature of rainbows that they can be clung to. They happen and they are beautiful but they can't be clung to. And likewise this perception of me and mine, it happens, it's a function of the senses so long as our perceptions are still coloured by unawareness. So clinging to this perception, this experience of me and mine gives us the feeling of being inherently inadequate and there's nothing wrong with that. So I find this conception of, of liberation as the goal of inherent adequacy contrasts that rather beautifully. Uh, trusting in that which is inherent is not like something we have to strive for. It's not like something we have to create. So, well, if I work hard... I can bring about enlightenment. That concept's perhaps not altogether conducive. It can be a a very contracted pseudo-spiritual me trying to get enlightened. And all we do is get ourselves tied up into an even more uncomfortable tangle. However we conceive of the goal and practice, to be willing to find what works, what works for us. Yes, we find what you can read in the books. 
We can hear what other people talk about, but don't believe them. Don't disbelieve them. It's like untangling that ball of string. Does it work or not? Does it become freer? Does the heart become more at ease? Do we inhabit our body more fully? Are we more here with what's happening? Is there more appreciation? Is there a greater willingness to forgive? A readiness to let go? Even of our treasured spiritual experiences. Even if, for instance, you manage to have some moment of opening that approximates uh, inherent adequacy, we need to be ready to let go of that also. It's tempting, like all the other treats that we have in life. Some of our spiritual, beautiful spiritual experiences, you can feel like, I've got to hang on to this. Well, if there's mature, well-developed mindfulness, restraint and reflection, then we're going to be willing even to investigate that tendency, the tendency to cling to our spiritual credentials. A willingness to let go of them. Not get rid of them, let go of them. The big difference between getting rid of something and letting go of something, like feeling angry. If we aim to get rid of our anger... That's, okay, that's a tall order. Yeah. But can we feel angry without becoming angry? Can we feel sad without becoming sad? Yeah. Well, again, if we're committed to the consistent cultivation of mindfulness, restraint, that careful containing restraint, not repression, mm-hmm. Again, a world of difference between restraining and containing and repressing into unawareness again. Worlds of difference. Mindfulness is not controlling. Restraining is not repressing. And reflecting is not compulsively thinking. If we're committed to consistent cultivation of the right kind of mindfulness, the right kind of restraint, the right kind of reflection then we'll start to discover for ourselves that, yeah, this is untangling of the heart knot, an opening and an increased willingness to receive even the disagreeable conditions we find ourselves in. Sometimes thoroughly disagreeable, but we don't define it as wrong. We're not going to say, it shouldn't be this way. Say, yes, this too, yes, this too. Include this in our spiritual practice. Don't default to some idea that conditions have to be thoroughly agreeable. Sometimes they're not, but let's find a way of including them in practice. Again, the tools that we work with, the skillful means and the faculties, the spiritual faculties that we use, remembering to return or to move towards balance in our approach. And we, can, uh, we can go out of balance in any area of our life, certainly working with the five spiritual faculties, which probably most of you will be aware of, uh, you know, faith or trust, mm-hmm. energy, mindfulness, recollectedness, discernment, 
Sadha Virya Sati Samadhi Panya, one of those many lists that the Buddha thankfully gave us to contemplate. If we've got mindfulness, restraint and reflection going, then we can look at these spiritual faculties. Are they balanced? It's very easy to go to balance with regards to virya, for instance. And most of us are so addicted, so impressed with, so keen on making progress that we just, we're just mainlining virya. You know, we, kind of, we think there's something wrong, we've just got to make more effort. As if somehow making more effort solves everything. We can overdose on effort. Yeah. The Buddha taught the five spiritual faculties so that we could reflect on them and see are they balanced. Is there the right amount of trust present in our practice? Is there the right amount of energy? Is there the right amount of mindfulness? Is there the right amount of recollectedness or, or stillness? Is there the right amount of discernment or questioning these, these faculties? If they're not in balance, they can throw us way out. But particularly that one of virya, intensity or energy. Yes, there are times when we need intensity in practice. That's what helps us deepen. Intensity definitely can be functional. But too much intensity, it's like, it's like having too much salt in your diet. You know, I mean, t- salt, I mean, wow, it can be yummy, right? You know. A big plate of chips, you know, covered in vinegar and salt. I mean, really, really good. <laughs> but too much of that, you, you, you ruin your arteries, and you, know, you eat that every day, and you have a heart attack or a brain hemorrhage. Yeah. It's a fact. That's a fact. You know, you don't have to read much science to know that too much salt is not good for us. Yeah. But it's so yummy. It tastes good. Yeah. Well, just because it tastes good doesn't mean that it is good. Just because intensity or virya in practice impresses us, it doesn't mean to say that it's good for us. So we want to be willing to question, to reflect on mindfulness, restraint and reflection in regards to the five spiritual faculties, particularly this one of, of virya. Don't, don't be overly impressed by yours or anybody else's enthusiasm and zeal it can be quite damaging. Um, in my years of practice, it's become very apparent within myself, but also within other people, uh, the deficit of trust that many of us have. Uh, there's all sorts of reasons for it, the fragmentation of the family and society contributes very much to the sense of alienation, disembodiment and undermines the very normal, very natural inclination human beings have to trust themselves. You know, many of us grow up, we just, we just don't trust ourselves. We're always doubting ourselves, we're always questioning everything. Yeah. And that is a real inhibitor when it comes to progressing on the path towards the goal, however we think of the goal. All the readiness to question, like discernment, panya, the fifth of those spiritual faculties. 
Some people are way out of balance. They've got loads of trust. They've got loads of faith. They're just radiant with faith. They're intoxicated with faith. They just love the Buddha, love the Dhamma, love the Sangha, love the scriptures, love going to spiritual places and love making offerings. But they're not going to question anything because that's too unsettling. Well, there's a time to be unsettled, like letting go of the false sense of security that comes from believing that you belong to the best religion. Yeah, that's tempting. Called religious fervour, religious zeal. And the next step is religious fundamentalism, which is not particularly good for anybody, generally speaking. Yeah, I suppose if you're keeping the five precepts, it might contain your madness, but it's better if we don't go that far. Yeah, the Buddha didn't want us to become believers. He wanted us to, as we all know, cultivate bhavana, Jitta bhavana, cultivation of the heart. Yes, trusting, but that's something we do with our hearts. It's believing is something we tend to do with our heads when we cling to ideas that we really like. Yeah. So being off on too much trust, too much faith, and not being able to question. Yeah. Being in balance with too much energy, too much zeal. Yeah. How do we... Manage this risk of imbalance? Well, again, the consistent cultivation of mindfulness, restraint, and reflection is going to help. So, thank you very much this evening for your attention. <laughs> Sadhu, sadhu.